So um, I'm going to I'm going to do something a little different than I usually do tonight. Um, um, what I'd like to do is um, it's a kind of hodgepodge of um, topics, um, readings that I've accumulated, and they're the kind of readings I accumulate, and then at some point they fit with a talk. But I don't have the talk, but I have the, I have the stuff. <laughs> so I thought I would read you some of the things, and then maybe I'll comment on it, or maybe you'll comment on it. And let, let's just see where it goes. And the first, the first couple of things that I want to talk about, well, the first thing, uh, let me ask you this. How many people were here at the night right after the rebellion in Tibet when, as a group, the, myself and the steering committee, we decided to, to donate all the money from the evening to the Tibetan people? How many people were here that night? Okay, a number of people. So you may have given in that spirit at, at that night. And what we said was we would just take whatever the rent was and then we would send the rest to a, you know, one of the groups in Tibet to support the Tibetan people. And um, when I told, and I was still teaching the month-long retreat then. I was coming in for Sunday night to teach here. And I went back to the retreat and I saw the other teachers and I was talking with Jack Cornfield and I said, you know, oh, we decided to donate to the Tibetan cause at my city group. And he thought, oh, that's great. And then he said, and he told his daughter about this and his daughter Caroline, who I've known since she was nine. She's probably about 23 now. And his daughter Caroline was in Dharamsala working for a Tibetan organization. And she said, send the money to this organization. She was volunteering there. She's spending a month or two doing volunteer work there. And she happened to be there when all this stuff started happening, both in Tibet and in India. And she asked if we would donate to that. And we checked out the organization and it looked great. And so that's who we gave the money to, which is the Tibetan Center for Human Rights and Democracy. And so here's the letter that we got from her, which is really, it's addressed to Eugene and the San Francisco Insight community. So really it's for everybody here. And she said, I wanted to write and thank you from everybody here in the office for your generous contribution. And just so you know, we, we ended up giving $1,000. It was like $980 and we, we added on whatever it was to, to round it out. Um, for your generous contribution to the Tibetan Center for Human Rights and Democracy. I've been volunteering here for the past month. And just so you know, Caroline, I, she just graduated college in political science at Berkeley. And she has, is taking a year off and traveling around the world by uh, volunteering at different causes that she's interested in. And it's kind of a really cool way to you know, travel at her age and go do good work and learn more about what's happening on the ground in different areas of the world and what kind of organizations there are that are happening that we might not even know about until you, you get someplace or you start looking through this lens. 
And she said, I've been volunteering here for the past month and what a time to be working for Tibet. You know, exclamation mark. Normally the TCHRD works in a number of capacities, publishing newsletters and reports on the situation in Tibet and also educating many Tibetans in exile about how human rights and democracy pertain to them. They have set up workshops around India to help teach the Tibetan communities why it is important to participate in their local elections and through what avenues they can express their opinion in a democratic society, both in their Indian government and the Tibetan government in exile. Additionally, the TCHRD prints uh, introduction booklets, uh, including activities and simple translations about human rights and democracy for secondary school Tibetan children. Many Tibetans are unaware that there are international laws and norms prohibiting much of their ill treatment in Tibet. Um, the group also publishes a monthly newsletter detailing recent human rights violations in Tibet, interviewing exiled Tibetans, and carrying stories about the actions of Tibetans in exile. And then she goes on. Then she says, in the past couple of weeks, as you can imagine, the office has been in a flurry. Since March 10th, the office has been struggling to keep up with the dozens of reports coming out of Tibet about the protest and crackdown. We have received images and video, much of which the TCHRD has been unable to release to the public as it shows the faces of many Tibetans who are protesting and could endanger their lives. And they have released, and, and have released countless press statements on the situation. The group has also helped to distribute facts and histories about the situation to the international media as well as designing and distributing numerous information pamphlets and posters of photos we have received. This was especially important because the first five days of the protest, the internet was mysteriously cut to Dharamsala, where many Tibetans live, and so they were unable to access much of the news. Kind of an interesting coincidence, don't you think? We lose the internet as the crackdown in Tibet happens. I personally have been extremely lucky to have been able to help out at such a great uh, NGO, non-government organization, whose efficiency and organization is better than many of the NGOs I have seen in the Bay Area, and whose staff is extremely dedicated to a cause which is close to their hearts. Please visit the website, etc., etc. Again, thank you so much, Caroline Cornfield. And then she says, P.S., also feel free to see, read my blog, detailing my observations of the last two weeks at alyssaandcarolinetravel.blogspot.com and for a brief history of the conflict in Tibet. So that's a little letter for you all. And I can leave this on the table. Put it on the announcements? Oh, on the Yahoo list. Okay. So just a little example of Ardana, and then what Ardana has been doing, what that offering that we did. Dana, for those of you who don't know, means generosity. And it's, of course, one of the important principles in Buddhist practice. And the principle is both a beginning principle and an end principle. And by that I mean 
when people would come to the Buddha, one of the first things he would teach them about is generosity. He would say, this is the basis for the path. This is the basis for human relationship that's um, um, harmonious. That we actually begin to see um, with the eye of wisdom how interconnected we are how much what we do affects what happens somewhere else. And they didn't quite have the media that we have at this time and the quickness of seeing a movement of information and funds, like even the fact we could send or wire or however we got, we wired the money to Dharamsala, you know, and then it gets there like that. Well, that wasn't quite happening at the time of the Buddha, but he still understood very deeply how interconnected we are and how powerful our um, understanding of that is regarding generosity, regarding helping one another or giving to one another and supporting one another and appreciating the support and the interconnectedness and then also really being grateful for what's given because it's all a a mutuality of giving and receiving and it doesn't just go one way at all. What's so odd about the Tibetan diaspora, the Tibetan suffering of having their country and culture um, basically um, uh, uh, being annihilated uh, during this time is that it forced all these Tibetan uh, lamas to leave Tibet and then they left Tibet and they ended up teaching in the West and now there are people all over the world studying Tibetan Buddhism not just studying but awakening realizing through that uh, suffering and what happened because of course the Tibetans came and then they just gave what they had and what they had was basically a thousand years of of a third of the culture devoted to spiritual practice. And it, if, you, if you look at Tibetan culture, it doesn't mean it was all good or all perfect, and it wasn't. It was, there was definitely feudal aspects to it and patriarchal aspects and hierarchical aspects and class. There, there were all the problems you would find in societies, in, in every society generally. But they also had a very unique um, contribution they were making in, in how dedicated they were to spiritual practice and spiritual life and then because of what's happened they had to leave Tibet and now it's spread out all over the world so it's odd how things work that way how even the suffering there's some kind of there's something good that also happens with suffering And then the second piece I thought I would mention, it's not really a writing, but it happened on the two-month retreat, and it's related to this, this quality of heart that we call dana, or generosity, or giving. Or, um, and this was a kind of unique situation where somebody I know was on retreat for two months, and I came at the beginning of the second month to teach the team switch at the end of a month. And as I got there, I got an email 
afterwards from somebody who'd been teaching the first month, one of the teachers, and he said, you know, you know this person and here's what's happening. And what he proceeded to tell me in the email was that this person who I knew, um, he was, he's on the list for getting a kidney. And he, need, he needs a, a new kidney, a kidney transplant. And it turned out somebody on the first month of the retreat heard about this. You know, maybe they, they knew him or they talked to him, you know, at the beginning of the retreat before people went into silence. And at the end of their retreat, this person decided they wanted to donate a kidney to this person who really they didn't, you know, they just knew him from retreat. And the person went home the person who wanted to donate the kidney went home, told their partner, you know, they'd come off retreat, they'd met this person, the person needed a kidney, they wanted to donate the kidney. And the partner thought about it and said, well, maybe you're not the right match. So why don't we both offer kidneys to see if one of us is the right match. So then the second person, who didn't even know the original person, the person who needs the kidney, also offered so two people have now offered to give a kidney if it's the right match. And I had the good fortune to tell the person who needs the kidney what was happening. And of course we waited till the end of the retreat. We didn't, we didn't tell them in the middle. It would have caused a lot of different experiences to happen. And you like to, we, we definitely like to minimize things like that on the retreat so people can just do their retreat. But a few days before the end, the other teacher he was working with and myself, he came in and he, we said, you know, we want to tell you something. And then we explained the situation. person from the first month wanted to offer a kidney and then their partner also decided that they would like to offer just to make sure you know, for a better chance of getting the right match. And of course, the, the fellow who'd been, um, who needed the kidney, he'd been sitting for two months. And so he was like this. Wow. true story. It was a four-wow interview. And, and honestly, he didn't say anything else but wow. For, and he just sat, and you could see it. Sometimes there were some tears and mostly just deep breathing and just taking it in, taking it in, taking it in. And then at the end, he said, he said, um, you know, I just decided yesterday in my heart that I was really going to do this. That I was really, even though he was on the list, he said he'd had some ambivalence about it and this and that. But he said yesterday it had just become clear, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get a kidney transplant. And then the next day he gets this information. And then he, and then he just said, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, and literally, and that was it. 
and that and then he went off and did his sitting and walking and sitting and checked in the next day and then we had more discussion about what needed to happen and of course the donors are anonymous donors they don't want to be identified and but it was just a really beautiful powerful uh, expression of dana of generosity of of how giving our hearts can be when self-concern relaxes, when self-concern is in abeyance. And we just see how connected we are. And then the, it's almost like the most natural thing to say, oh, how can I help? Or what can I do? Or what do you need? And, you know, it doesn't mean everybody here has to go out and offer their kidneys. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. Because for each person, how we give will be different. And there'll be different forms and ways that we'll give. Some of us will give of our kidneys. And some of us will give of our time. Some of us will give of our uh, skills or our love. And actually, it's not will give. We already give in these ways of our attention, of our care, of our kindness. Some, some of us will give of our means. It's all dana. It's all giving. And for the Buddha, it was really important to recognize the process by which we live, the mutuality that's here already. You know, and it gets obscured a little in our society because of the, we have a business model in our society, four fee. But still, there's a difference when somebody's doing it for the pay and somebody's doing it with the goodness of their heart. One of the things I love about bike riding is bike mechanics. Because you, mostly you go into bike stores and the people who work in bike stores love biking and love bikes and there's this generosity that's there. And they want your bike to work and they want you to be happy and they, you know, they want to get paid. That's part of the thing. But they don't, that's not the most important thing. And it's the same with anybody when, we, when, when our skills are developed. You know, we all need to get supported and this is the model our culture has. But we love to give of our skills and of our knowledge, of our wisdom and of our capacities. Because for one, it's, it's, it's what we have to offer. It's our contribution to make. And then also, the giving also has a receiving. You know, when we do something and we do it well and somebody's happy, there's mudita. This is the, so there's another Buddhist word, which is joy. This is the joy uh, of, of doing, not only the joy of doing well, but the joy in another's joy, the joy in another's happiness, the joy in another's satisfaction and well-being. And that's a, that's a wonderful pleasure that we have with one another. And so the giving affords us the pleasure of giving, the joy of giving. And I learned this really clearly. I mean, I knew this in other ways. I'd actually been, when I was younger, I'd repaired musical instruments. Um, and I was a musician. And it was just like bikes. You know, musicians love their instruments. right? And I was a woodwind repairman. So flutes and saxophones and oboes and bassoons and clarinets. And, yeah. And, and people, 
love their instruments, right? And if it's broken, it's like you're a little broken. You can't function if your instrument doesn't work. And and so it would be so fun to fix somebody's instrument because, first of all, they just loved you for it, right? They were just so happy. How many people here know John Zorn? Who know who John Zorn is? I want to see. So John Zorn is a friend of mine because of that. He came in with his saxophone. He had a gig. John Zorn is a really great musician, composer, innovator. And he was here in San Francisco performing at one of these little musician-run places about a long time ago. And he came in and his saxophone didn't work. And, uh, And I already knew John's music. I already loved his music and it was so great to fix his instrument right his saxophone it was easy for me you know but hard for him and then we we developed a whole friendship out of that it was just lovely and I I used to you know I used to see a lot of struggling musicians so sometimes musicians didn't have the money so it's like okay you know bring me the money when you have it or bring me something else when you have something else you know, musicians had all kinds of things. So. <laughs> <laughs> or I remember I used to work on, um, um, you, I don't know if it still exists, the Church of John Coltrane, does it still exist? Yeah, yeah. It got moved. It was on Divisadero. And, and at the time, um, the fellow who was leading it was Bishop Ramakrishna King. And I don't know if he's still leading it, but he was a great sax player, and it was just so fun. You know, and so when we, when we have something to offer, even when it's for fee, but when we love what we're doing, or we appreciate that we're giving something to somebody, it becomes a whole other level of interaction. And it, you know, I'm talking about bikes or instruments, but you could be a doctor. Or you could be a computer, you could teach computer skills. You know, for those of us who are like computer challenged, we're so grateful. <laughs> I mean, really, we are so grateful when somebody shows us, oh, how do you copy something? Or how do you attach something? Or whatever it might be. You know, or, or if you build something, if you're, you know, a carpenter, or if you're a craftsperson, or if you're a school teacher, whatever it might be. Even a weight person, when somebody waits on you and they really do it with heart, with some generosity, it's different than if they're just doing it for the money. And so, for us, part of our practice is to cultivate cultivate that sense of generosity with our friends, with our family, with our community, with the world. And this, this, these are a couple examples of giving financially of means to support people who are suffering or like what happened with our friend at the two-month retreat, that kind of spontaneous uh, uh, offering of how can I help, what can I give? And in that spirit, I thought I would read you a little bit the obituary of uh, Maha Gosananda. How many people know who Maha Gosananda is? Very few. So Maha Gosananda, I met once at Spirit Rock. He was there for, we had a big kind of um, international teacher meeting that included the Dalai Lama 
and Mahagosananda. And really, I equate the two quite a bit. Uh, except Mahagosananda was very small, little slight man with wool hat and a lot of socks on. And he was cold, clearly. But he was beatific. I mean, you, could, you wondered if he was touching the ground or not when he walked. And he was just the radiance of his being it was specific. It was like a little halo around him, a little angel. And and there's this great photograph. You can see it if you go to Spirit Rock and you go to what's called the Gratitude Hut. There's pictures of many of our teachers. And there's a picture of the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda bowing to each other. And neither one of them can get down low enough, right? They're each trying to get lower than the other and their heads are touching at about a foot off the ground. And Mahagosananda died um, not quite a year ago. And he was considered the Gandhi of Cambodia. And I just thought I'd read you a little bit. And this is from The Economist, which is surprising how, how much they got it right, really, of who he was. Um, they're talking about Gosananda led uh, Dharma Yatras or pilgrimages of truth in the early 90s in Cambodia after the signing of the peace accords to end the civil war between the remnants of the murderous Khmer Rouge and the new Vietnamese-backed Cambodian government. Even though the peace accord had been signed, he often found war still raging. And he would do these walks, through peace walks, through Cambodia. It says, shells screamed over the walkers and firefights broke out round, around them. Some were killed. The more timid ran home. But Gosananda had chosen his routes deliberately to pass through areas of conflict. Sometime the walkers found themselves caught up in long lines of refugees, footsore like them, trudging along ox carts and bicycles piled high with mattresses and pans and live chickens. We must find the courage to leave our temples, Gosananda insisted, and enter the suffering-filled temples of human experience. Right? He's, and, and for those of you who don't know, Gosananda was a monk all his life. Many of the villagers they met had not seen a Buddhist monk for years. In the old Cambodia, before the Khmer Rouge, in April 1970, oh, before the Khmer Rouge in 19. 75 had proclaimed a new utopia. Forest monks had been a part of rural life, wandering through the, the um, villages with, with their staves and bowls, exchanging a handful of rice for a blessing. Now the Khmer Rouge had outlawed nostalgia, had raised the monasteries and thrown the mutilated Buddha statues into the rivers. Even though this had happened, old habits stirred. As people caught sight of Gosananda's chant, and this is what he would chant as he re-entered Cambodia, because he'd been gone, he hadn't been there during the Cambodian Holocaust. Here's what he would chant. He would chant, Hatred will never cease by hatred, but by love alone will hatred cease. This is an ancient and eternal law. This is, this is basically, he's quoting from the Metta Sutta, the Sutta on loving kindness from the Buddha. Hatred will never cease by hatred, but by love alone will hatred cease. This is an ancient and eternal law. And 
and he would chant this, it says, and soldiers laid down their arms and knelt by the side of the road. Villagers brought water to be blessed and plunged glowing incense sticks into it to signal the end of the war. Gosananda himself had missed the chaos of the Khmer Rouge years. His family, ordinary peasant folk from the Mekong Delta, had been wiped out. Monks like him, quote, social parasites, unquote, as they were now branded, were defrocked, forced to labor in the fields, or murdered. Out of 60,000 monks, only 3,000 were left alive, and those had fled. But Gosananda had been in Thailand studying meditation in 1965, staying for years in a hermitage in the forest where only the buzz of insects disturbed him. Not until 1978, when he went to minister to Cambodian refugees in the camps on the Thai border, did he learn that Buddhism had been destroyed in Cambodia. Although almost all the people had adhered, had been destroyed to Cambodia, although almost all the people of Cambodia had been Buddhists, he decided then that his duty was to restore his country's sacred foundation. He did not believe this could be done through grand temples or enclosed institutions. And he could have done that. He'd been a temple kid, and then he'd been a monk his whole life, and a scholar. And he, it says, yet he could not stay out of the world. Rather than devoting himself to monastic scholarship, he built hut temples in the refugee camps and handed out dog-eared photocopies of the Buddha's metta sutta, or words of love. And then they're quoting, they say, With a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating love over the entire world, spreading upward to the sky and downward to the depths. On his walks, his message remained the same. It needed no complication. The work he knew would be slow, step by step. And there's a, there's a lovely little book of his teachings called Step by Step, and I'm sure you can get, you know, at the Fields Bookstore or online. It would continue, his, his practice would continue as long as Cambodians felt divided from each other and brutalized by their past. After 1980, he was made much of. He represented the Cambodian government in exile at the United Nations and was influential in the peace talks in 1988. Uh, in, in influential in the peace talks and then in 1988 he was made the Supreme Patriarch of Cambodia several times he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize he founded more than 50 temples across the world some he spoke at but his first priority lay elsewhere it was to appear birdlike out of the Cambodian forest to surpri surprise a man digging or a woman washing to remind them that the power of love was stronger than the forces of history, and then to move on. So I'm, again, I'm reading this partly just because I, I think he's so inspiring, and that what's possible for us as human beings um, needs this kind of inspiration to see beyond the cynicism of our time and the small-mindedness of pop culture, current culture, to really see how big the heart can be. 
and I, I don't actually have a lot more to say about Kosananda, but I just wish, I wish he was here. I wish you could be with him. You know, it's, it's, I, I just can't describe it. I didn't even talk to him. You didn't have to talk to him. You just could be around him. And he radiated the love. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't a belief. It was, it was, he had realized what the Buddha taught. It was real. And so it was real. It didn't need, he didn't even need to say it. It was so real. It, it was who he was. Very sweet. Very sweet man. And you guys can pop in with questions or comments anytime. I've got more than I can read. So I'm going to do inspiration tonight. Here, I'll do one more. This is, or two more. About the Dalai Lama. And this is, uh, uh, this is about Paul Ekman. And Paul Ekman is a research psychologist and a scientist. And um, I'll read you what it says. It says, in March of 2000, Paul Ekman arrived in Dharamsala, India as a highly accomplished research psychologist. He was soon to be named by the American Psychological Association as one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century. He was staunchly scientific in his views and pessimistic in his outlook on life. The Mind and Life Institute, who sponsors meetings with the Dalai Lama and scientists, invited Dr. Ackman to participate in the eighth of a series of private dialogues between His Holiness and preeminent Western scientists. He was asked to present on his extensive research into the nature of human emotion its universal components, evolutionary purpose, functions, and facial expressions. He studied the facial expressions of human beings, uh, uh, the, the emotional expression for the past 20 or 30 years. And I'm going to try and spare you this out of my generosity. goes on to say, although not personally interested in Buddhism, Dr. Ekman accepted the invitation. One week later, he left a different man. Frequently at the meetings, the Dalai Lama would stay at tea breaks in the mornings and afternoons to chat informally with the participants. At one such interlude, His Holiness held Paul's hand. The scientist had an experience unlike any he had ever had before, one for which he has no easy explanation. There was, he said, a strong sensation of warmth, but more than that. And in the months followed, in the months that followed, Paul found that he almost never got angry, which represented a significant temperamental change. <laughs> Since the meeting in 2000, he has had the unique opportunity to spend 39 hours speaking one-on-one -on -one with the Dalai Lama about emotions for a book they are writing together. Paul Ekman is now an optimist. And if you want to read more about this, it's in the fall 2007 
inquiring mind. And it's really interesting to actually read more. He talks more about that they were sitting and talking to his daughter, but that and as the Dalai Lama was holding his hand. And he said he's just never experienced anything like that. And now, if he thinks about it, he can start to experience it again. But he can't actually describe it too well, except there's something special that happened, and that happens when he remembers it or contemplates it and thinks about it. And, um, and the other thing he said that I thought was really cool was he talked about how passionate the Dalai Lama was. That they would have these discussions and disagreements about emotions like like Paul Ekman was telling the Dalai Lama about the positive attributes of hatred. Right? <laughs> and the Dalai Lama wasn't having it, you know. And, uh, and, and Paul Ekman said, he said what he loved about the Dalai Lama was he would get very passionate about having a discussion and he told the Dalai Lama, he says, oh, I really like you, you know, you get, you get as passionate as I do. And the Dalai Lama said, well, what's the point of talking if you can't get passionate about it, if you're not passionate and passionate by what you care about? And I think that's always an important thing for practitioners to hear because somehow Buddhist practitioners get the idea that passion is not a good thing or that we shouldn't have passion for what we care about. We should be aloof, detached, free of all of that passion stuff. And that's not the case. That part of freedom is the freedom to have the, the uh, breadth and depth of our hearts as part of who we are. Not having to repress or suppress or deny the power of who we are, what we are, and, and of our love, and of our care, and of our compassion. And uh, just so you hear the part about hatred, they came to some middle way about the hatred piece, where where he convinced the Dalai Lama that it might be a temporarily used skillful means. The hatred might help somebody in the sh in the short term, and but long term, it's proud that he also agreed it's probably not so skillful. So they each came a little bit on that one. They each gave a little bit. And the Dalai Lama is such a wonderful figure, again, as an inspiration for us, and as an inspiration not just because, you know, he's the Dalai Lama, but because of who he actually is. Forgetting the Dalai Lama uh, um, uh, title, if, you're, if you ever get to be around him, or here's how my daughter put it, my daughter called me up one day when she was in school in Minnesota. And she said, Dad, uh, do you have any pull with the Dalai Lama? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you, what's up? You know, I'm like, she said, well, the Dalai Lama's coming to campus next week and all the tickets are sold out and I'd like to go see him. <laughs> and I said, okay. And you know, it's my daughter who mostly, from the time she was 13, she was like, I don't want to go to Spirit Rock, Dad. You know, it's your dad's thing. You don't want to do that when you're a teenager. Whatever your dad's thing is, you don't usually want to do it. And so she, she you know, she, she appreciated Buddhism, but she wasn't interested in it at all. 
and she just did her thing and then went away to school and then she wanted to go see the Dalai Lama. So, But I'm her dad, so I'm like, okay, you want to see the Dalai Lama? I'll, let me see what I can do. I'll call you back. And I I actually called Jack Cornfield. I said, Jack, do we have some pull with the Dalai Lama? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, he said, yeah, I'll tell you who to talk to and blah, 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 da, 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 da. But in the meantime, I'd already put in a call to somebody I knew in Minnesota because I'd talked there a number of times. And the woman called me back. She said, you know, I have an extra ticket. I'd be happy to take your daughter. So we didn't have to pull in our chips with the <laughs> Tibetan government in exile. <laughs> but um, but um, she, and so my daughter went and she, uh, I called her afterwards. I said, well, how was it? She said, well, it was kind of boring. <laughs> but I really liked him like you know he gave a very traditional teaching which even for people who are into Buddhism can be boring at times let me assure you but but, um, but that, that's not the point he is something to be around like Gosananda you just want to be around him if you can if there's any way you can be around the Dalai Lama do it just to see what, what happens. And um, um, I, was re I was actually reading this story to a close friend of mine uh, today. And she said, oh, and she started smiling and she got a little beatific herself. I said, what's going on? She said, oh, I just remember the one time I met the Dalai Lama and he held my hand. And, you know, you, if you get around him, usually you don't, you don't forget it. And my daughter went out, even though the teacher was born, she went out and bought the book, uh, the Something of Happiness, that he, The Art of Happiness. And she, of course, told me how she bought it with her own money, you know, which I was sending her. And, uh, <laughs> but I was happy, you know. You know. And, and so the Dalai Lama is really a beautiful example of a very mature human being. A very mature human being. A human being who's done their work, done their homework, and, be, and beyond. You know, that he can see, he, can, he works a very complicated job. Nobody here has a more complicated job than the Dalai Lama. I mean, we all have our jobs, and they're complicated, or they're busy. He's right there. He's the leader of... A, religious institution and a government in exile and he's you know has to deal with people at every level of society right he deals with the people escaping from Tibet they come to see him after they've crossed the, the highest mountains of the world to be free and when they come to Dharamsala part of what happened part of the reason they come is to see the Dalai Lama and he meets with each person who comes and not only does he meet with them he says please tell me tell me your story he doesn't say, oh, everything is empty and it's all perfect, even though he knows that's true also. But the first thing he says is, tell me your story. And he, he weeps with people. He cries with people. He cries easily, the Dalai Lama. And he laughs easily. And it's part of that freedom, that full freedom of heart that is part of our birthright. And so here's another story about the Dalai Lama other than my daughter. 
My friend Sid once placed a Groucho Marx mask in a hotel room where the Dalai Lama would be staying. It was during a visit to an Ivy League university. His Holiness had once told Sid, one of the main organizers of the Dalai Lama's visit, that always having to be the Dalai Lama didn't give him much freedom. So much politics, so much responsibility. Being a compassionate fellow, Sid wanted to help. A disguise, humorous and absurd, he thought would be just the thing. So imagine this, at a university, in a beautiful apartment, a cascade of university bureaucrats arrayed in the Dalai Lama's suite, waiting for their guest to appear, waiting for their visit with His Holiness. They sit erect in armchairs designed for slouching. They're keyed up by the barricade of media flax surrounding the hotel, the barricade uh, of FBI men surrounding the suite. They've also spent inordinate amounts of donor money on this visit, and they, like all humans, harbor the deep longing to be knocked back up out by an influx of spirit and greatness. Minutes pass and then a door flings open. Unaccountably, Groucho Marx, wearing long maroon robes and, and serious lace-up shoes, emerges chuckling, laughing loudly, so hard that tears come out of his bespeckled eyes. Would the Pope do this? I think to myself. Would, would John Paul, who reputedly has a sense of humor, this was a few popes ago, has a sense of humor and even a perchance for theatrics ever meet dignitaries, even Ivy League peons wearing Marx Brothers attire of any kind? And if he did, what then? Does it raise or lower that spiritual rating? How do people react when a dignitary, especially of a spiritual kind, does something so undignified? Intrigued, I called up the university official in charge of the visits of the accomplished and famous and the presidential. She clearly is not a woman easily impressed. How did she feel, I asked, at the Groucho moment? At first, she tells me she didn't know how to react. And then she and everyone started to laugh at the wonderful absurdity of the situation. Laughed with a joy and in caution in caution, uncharacteristic of people in their position. I should have a Marx Brothers mask right now, you know. <coughs> If you've been around the Dalai Lama, he likes to have fun. He laughs a lot. He jokes. He made fun of us in Spirit Rock. He kept saying, oh, you know, chickens sit a lot also. <laughs> you know, because we like to meditate a lot. And he's like, meditation, that's okay, but you need to think. You need to study and think and think and study and study and think. Because he comes from a tradition that's very scholarly. 
in addition to all the different meditative practices he's done. And he, at some point, he was doing this whole thing about bunny rabbits, and he was, he was like, and you know, it's the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and if you've ever looked, if you look at some of the old books, because I remember, I learned about the Dalai Lama uh, before he was a, a world figure. And I was in, I was, I'd read the Tibetan book of the dead at a ridiculously young age. I didn't understand it at all, but I thought it was cool. And there was a picture of one of the his his previous incarnation, you know. And it just looked, what a world they lived in and came out of, living in the Tibetan plateau, just practicing for a thousand years. And then here he is now, and there's billboards with the Dalai Lama. And there's, he meets people in all everywhere. He's known for, when he goes, he's at staying at a hotel at the end, he asks that all the people who've been serving, serving him, the maids and the cooks and the bell people, that they all, that he get to say goodbye to all of them. And they, the, the hotel will line them up and he'll go one by one and thank them for their work. So let me leave you with the Dalai Lama as Groucho Marx. Let's sit for a minute. <clears throat> Let's sit like chickens. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.